So I used to be really into this show, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Anyone else into this show? Okay, come on. Like, can you raise your hand? How many people are into the show? There's a new version, apparently, it's called Fixer Upper. It's similar, more people are into that one. I've heard, it's like the same idea. But I used to love this show. There's something compelling, there's something exciting, there's something heartwarming about seeing this home that obviously needs to get redone, that needs to get refurnished, that needs to get remodeled. And then the family that you know, can't afford it and is struggling and they go through this whole process in a very short window of time and they have this beautiful reveal. And you're watching and you're seeing the new furniture and the new paint and the new landscaping and, and oftentimes new rooms. Like they break down walls and they build new rooms. And the look and the feel, everything about the home is different. Literally from the before and after, you could think it's two totally different places. And they do it all in the span of like a week or something ridiculous. And the best part of the show, you know, is the end. It's the best. Now, you know, the journey getting there, the decisions, they always take the family, they go to Disney World or something for the week, you know, like, it's, it's nice. But the end is the best, where they're blindfolded or they have like a big screen in front of them with the, their, their old home on the screen, and then they pull it away, they take out the blindfold, and the fam- you see the family's reaction, right, when they see the home for the first time. And they're just, they're crying, they're freaking out, they're dancing, and then they run, and then here's my favorite part when they go inside, right? And they get inside and they're like losing their minds because they have like a espresso machine in their kitchen and they're going in their bedroom and the kids are going nuts because there's a princess room and then there's a Ninja Turtles room and it's like amazing. And I love this part because this is where I imagine that this is my home. This is what I do. I think about it, I'm like, what would it be like to live in a magazine home? You know, what would it be like to, to go home and that is what you get to relax in and spend time in every single day? And you begin to imagine and think how excited you would be if you were on the show and if that was your home and how happy you would be and how relaxed you would feel. And I was asking myself this question, why is it that I'm so captivated by these types of shows, or maybe you as well, if you watch them as well. Why do we love to see the before and after? Why are we captivated by that? And I think it's because we love finished products. We love finished products. We like the before to the after in everything. We like how it was before, it needed some work, and then the after, it's beautiful. It's meticulously crafted, and that's exciting. And what happens for us is that that's how we we spend our lives, right? We're chasing after these beautifully crafted, these beautifully finished products. And we fall into the trap of believing this. Once I achieve this, once I get this, once I reach this position, once I have this home, then I'll be excited and then I can relax and then I'll be happy because we live our life like it's this before and after TV show. And we're just trying to get to the end when we can have this beautifully finished product because a beautifully finished product is what is gonna bring us happiness and joy. And so we look at our life and we process our life. We're like, one day, all the effort and all the tears and all the sweat and all the hard work and all the struggle will be worth it because I'm going to get fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. I'm gonna reach this level in my career. I'm gonna have these type of relationships I'm going to retire in this place. And we treat our life like this, and we're chasing after these finished products to make us happy. 
And if you were with us last week when we started this new series called The Chase, we're going through the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes, and, and we, we told you that the main character in Ecclesiastes is the Koheleth, that's the Hebrew name, and it's translated as the teacher. And if you were with us last week, you know the teacher is about to burst your bubble. If you think that your life is going to be this before and after, and once you reach and achieve these beautifully finished products and you enjoy them, then you're going to be happy. He's going to tell you something different, and it's probably not going to be pleasant. Last week, we were looking at chasing meaning, and here's what it all boiled down to. The teacher said that if you think you're going to find meaning in the things that are under the sun, the things you can achieve, the things you can get, how you can improve yourself you're going to be disappointed because it's chasing after vapors. It's meaningless. It's fleeting. You may enjoy it for a moment, but then it's gone. And the teacher here in this book understands that you're going to doubt his assessment of things. And so the rest of the book, as we'll see tonight, he begins to get specific. And he said, okay, I know the first chapter was heavy and it was kind of depressing, But I'm going to begin to unfold what it looks like to chase very specific things that every human being desires. And tonight is happiness, something that we all desire. You know, the the most well-attended class in the history of Yale University is a class on finding happiness. Almost over, over half of the student body attended this one class of how to find happiness, chasing happiness. And tonight, the teacher is going to dive into this, and he's going to host a class, and he's going to say, okay, what does it look like to chase happiness? And here's what he says in the very first verse of chapter two. He says, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. And as we saw last week, the teacher is not a fan of drama. He's not going to tease this out. He's not going to give you a little plot you know, twist here and there and then have a big reveal. He's just going to tell you right at the very beginning what his hypothesis is. And here's what he said. I found that this too was meaningless or better yet translated a vapor. He's saying, I said to myself, I'm just going to try pleasure. I'm going to try to look at all the good things in life and I'm going to try to chase those to be happy. Spoiler alert, it's a vapor. It's meaningless. He says in verse two, I said to myself, Laughter is silly. What good does it to seek pleasure? Essentially what he's saying is this. What do you get when you chase happiness in the things of life? I mean, what what does it produce? Because what his assessment is, is that all you get are moments of happiness. It's microwaved happiness. It's fleeting. It's a vapor. It's here for a second. You may enjoy it for a moment, but then it's gone. What do you get? I mean, you get a lot of anxiety. You get a lot of stress. You get a lot of pressure. You get a lot of failed expectations, exhaustion. What do you really get? And his assessment is that what you get is nothing, really. But he's a thinker. He's a philosopher. And so he's going to test his hypothesis. And he's tested it over his life. And he's going to explain to you what his life looks like as he, as he sought happiness in good things, as he was seeking pleasure in good things. And here's what he says in verse 3. He says, after much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only thing most people find during their brief life in this world. So his first step to happiness was he was going to turn up. That's the first step. Not exactly, but... He's not, he's not simply saying that, okay, 
first step to happiness, I'm just going to start drinking a lot. And just experience that, enjoy that, take that in. He's saying more here that, yes, he's, he's going to begin to, to enjoy wine. He's going to experience all that wine has for you when you partake of it. But really more what he's saying is that he's going to become a connoisseur of wine. He can afford fine wine, so he's going to start to learn about it. He's going to begin to enjoy its complexities. Essentially what he's saying is the first step for me to happiness is that I'm going to start to, to look at and to enjoy the simple luxuries of life. And for him, he chose wine. So he's going to learn how to look at it and how to smell it and to swirl it and to taste it and to make these weird noises with your mouth. Like, you know, like apparently that does something, you know? He's going to learn how to enjoy wine because he thinks maybe you can find happiness in the simple luxuries of life, in the comforts of life. And his assessment here isn't only with wine, right? You you may not have the opportunity one day to become a connoisseur of fine wine and have a cellar in your house and, and learn how to do that weird thing with your mouth so you can taste it. But what he's saying is insert any luxury, insert any comfort, any simple thing that is attainable to most people, whatever that may be for you. And he sought happiness in this. For him, he chose wine. And it ended up not producing lasting happiness. So he moves on to step two. So he says, okay, step two, I'm going to move to something different. I tried to find meaning in building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. And I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. So step two to happiness is that he's going to build. He's like, okay, the first one didn't work. Luxuries and comforts didn't produce lasting happiness. So now I'm going to start to build. I'm going to build palaces. And, and Solomon, who is the most likely author of Ecclesiastes, really leaned into building. He built so many different palaces. One of the palaces that Solomon built was titled the Palace of the Forest because it was made from these very rare materials. And it was like this garden city that he built. And he's going to build vineyards, and he's going to build forests, and he's going to build parks. And he's going to lean into building all these things. And Solomon is actually regarded as building one of the most beautiful things ever in the history of the world, which is the temple. It has now been destroyed. But it was no, people from all over the world would come to see Solomon's temple. And so he's saying, listen, maybe if I build some beautiful things that will last and will be impressive and will say much about me, then I can find happiness. And the teacher here is warning us not to fall captive into thinking that what you build and, and what you achieve and what you come to rest in will somehow provide happiness. That could be easy to do, right? It can be easy to fall into that, to think, you know, one day when I can afford to live in this home, and I can live in this neighborhood, and this is what my house will look like. When I have the Extreme Makeover Home Edition in my life, then I'm going to be happy. Or when I can move into this building, or when I can retire and build my own home in the mountains and sit on my balcony, I want to be a connoisseur of fine wine as well, Carter, and look at the landscape, then I'll be happy. Once I get there, once I build that for my life, then I'll be happy. And the teacher is warning us not to think like that. And maybe you're like, okay, well, I'm not, 
I'm not really interested in, in building a big home. I don't need to be in the mountains. I don't need to live in a certain building. But there's another aspect here that I think is probably even uh, more of a trap for most of us, which is this, to believe that you can find happiness by building something innovative and game-changing, by being creative, inventing something new in the market or creating a company that is a game-changer and being known, that the kind of celebrity aspect of creating something new and being innovative. Because the teacher here says that he built reservoirs to collect water to irrigate. And Solomon is actually credited with being the first person to invent the irrigation system. I mean, this is like a huge creation. It changed everything. It changed how you farm. It changed vineyards. It changed parks. And the Romans eventually expanded upon this, but this is all attributed to Solomon. And he's saying, step two, I thought, what if I build some great palaces and some parks, and even if I create some innovative, game-changing things, then maybe I'll be happy. I'll feel like I, I made a difference in my life. And he says, I didn't find it there either. So the, the next step, he says, I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who lived in Jerusalem before me. And the third step here is, he's like, okay, comforts and luxuries didn't work. Building and being creative and innovating didn't work. The third step is going to be, I'm just going to try to be as successful as I can in what I've been given and the opportunities I have before me. And I have to say this because if I don't say this, you're not going to listen to anything else in the rest of the sermon uh, to explain what is being said when it says that I own slaves. See, in, in, the, in the Old Testament and in, in Scripture at large, uh, the, the idea of slavery was more one of servitude. It was contracted employees. So for some for a limited time and some for a lifetime. And oftentimes what happens is when you hear slavery in the Bible, you think of the experience that happened in America. You think chattel or race-based slavery that was kidnapping. It was horrific. And this is not what is being spoken about here. Actually, the Bible speaks out against slavery in this regard in many places. One of those is Exodus 21.6. It says this, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. It's pretty clear. And then Paul in the New Testament says that some of the worst sinners are slave traders. And so Scripture is not promoting slavery like I said, this is more contracted employees, and oftentimes the terminology is one of a bond servant. So it's more of a boss-employee kind of relationship. Some people would serve as slaves for about seven years. They'd be paid, and then after seven years, they'd be allowed to leave, and they could go start their own business, and they could go uh, you know, hire their own employees or slaves. And some people would opt in to stay for a lifetime because the master or the boss would provide housing, would pay them, would take care of the family, the whole family would be employed, and it would be a life that was desirable, essentially it's a stable job for the rest of their life. And so it's not what we imagine when we hear the word. And I think it's really important that we know that because scripture time and time and time again is speaking to masters or to bosses and saying you need to treat your employees, to treat your slaves with respect, with kindness, with justice all throughout the scripture. And so it's important to say that because if not, you're not going to hear anything else because you're like, he said he bought slaves and that feels really off. And so Solomon here had many, many slaves because he was very successful. He had a lot of people that worked for him. And I'm not saying Solomon was an amazing boss, but I am letting you know kind of what the culture is and what uh, is being spoken about here. And so Solomon 
or the teacher who is being spoken um, from Solomon, he's saying the third step to happiness was I'm just going to be successful. I'm going to grow my company. I'm going to grow the opportunities that I have, and I'm going to employ a lot of people, and I'm going to be regarded by my peers as successful. And when I reach that place, then I'll be happy because I'll have a certain level of power and a certain level of uh, prestige and I'll have a reputation that will be above others and that will surely make me happy. And it doesn't work either. So he says, okay, next step, I'm going to collect great sums of silver and gold, the treasures of many kings and promises, or provinces. Fourth step to happiness is money. He's like, all right, I'm just going to make a lot of money because I'm going to buy happiness. That doesn't work. So he goes to the next step. He says, I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and I had many beautiful concubines. He's like, I'm tired of going to concerts. I don't want to go to concerts. I've made all this money. I've been really successful. I've built the, the palace that looks like a forest. So I'm just going to hire people to come give me private concerts, and that will be amazing. No one else can do that. That surely will make me happy. That didn't work. And so the last step is this. I'm just going to go to my most basic instinct. I think that all of these other things have not worked, so I'm just going to revert to sex. That seems like that should work. So concubines, as he says, he has many beautiful concubines. Uh, concubines are, are people that were used for sexual pleasure, and he's saying this. Listen, I leaned into all of these steps. And so when I got to the very last step, was, which was sex, I just thought to myself, I'm just going to have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want. I can have anyone I desire. Surely that will make me happy. That didn't work either. He didn't find happiness in any of these things. And here's the assessment of his journey as he's been chasing happiness in all of these different places in life. He says in verse 9, so I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. I really appreciate this part of Ecclesiastes in chapter 2 because he's acknowledging something that you're probably thinking. You're like, okay, he was a connoisseur of wine. He built innovative things that changed the world. He built palaces. He made a lot of money. He was successful. All of these different things. He was desired by people. He could have anything he wanted. Don't tell me that there wasn't like some happiness here. Right? Like, come on. And he says here, the journey wasn't miserable. He's not, he's not claiming that there weren't moments of happiness. There weren't moments where he's like, this is amazing. Look what I'm accomplishing. Look who I am. Look, look how many people love me and want me and work for me and, and all that I've done. He says here that he found great pleasure in hard work and, and all the, the things that he poured himself into. There was pleasure. There was happiness. But he says it was a vapor. It was for a moment. He enjoyed it for a moment and it was gone. It was a microwaved happiness. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish and it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. And this is the, the paradox of, of chasing after happiness. Here's his assessment. He's saying, listen, I tried everything. I could have anything I wanted 
And I accomplished a lot of things in my life. And I had many moments of happiness, many moments of pleasure, many moments of satisfaction where I felt like I was doing something that was worthwhile. But at the end of it, I recognized that it was all meaningless. It was a vapor. That as the very beginning, he says, what do you actually get? What, what is produced by seeking pleasure? And his assessment of his life is nothing really. Like, I was chasing after happiness, but really, so much of my life was encapsulated by the opposite, by stress and anxiety and exhaustion. And eventually, I got to the end of it, and I looked back, and I said, yeah, there were some good times, but I never found what I was looking for in any of these things. Albert Camus, a French philosopher, he says this. He says that a man wants to earn money in order to be happy. And his whole effort and the best of a life are devoted to earning the earning of that money. Happiness is forgotten and the means are taken for the end. And you can sub money in for anything. He's saying, you fall into the trap of thinking money or success or being innovative or building something or enjoying these luxuries or sex or whatever it may be. That if you just can find and achieve and grab a hold and make those things happen for you, then you're going to be happy and you waste the best of your life and you don't actually ever find it. And so the question is, so what now? What's the conclusion? And in chapter three, the teacher says this. He says in verse 10, I have seen the burden that God has placed on us all. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from the beginning to the end. You know, one of the most frustrating things in all of life is traffic. Do you agree with me? If you see me in traffic, I'm a different person. I mean, something takes over me. Uh, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And the worst... I mean, you, you like literally change into a completely different person. If you're driving on 95 or the turnpike to Orlando and you get stuff in traffic there or you're like literally in the middle of nowhere, that's the worst. Like, have you ever had that happen, right? You're driving on 95, the turnpike, you're heading to Orlando, you got the music going, you're hanging out, you got the windows down, you're like, I'm making good time, look at me go. And you see some red lights in front of you. You're like, oh, it's like roadkill maybe, you know, they went around, I don't know, we're in the middle of nowhere, I mean... And you start to get closer and closer, and it's still red lights. And now you're getting a little bit concerned. So you pull, a, you eventually get to the cars, and you stop. And the first thing you do is you pull out Google Maps, and you hit the mask button, and all you see is red. And you're like, oh, no. What's the first instinct? One of two things. Either if the cars are moving a little bit, you swerve a little bit to the side, right, to see. Like, can you see down there? Like, what's going on? And if you're actually in a true standstill deadlock, you get out of the car. Have you done this before? You park, put, put the car in park. You get out, and you're like, hey, do you know what's going on? And you're like, is there one of those numbers we can call? Like, we got to figure out what's happening here. And why do you do this? Why do I do this? Because I know if I can see the end, if I can see where it clears up, I can relax. I, I can turn the music back on make a phone call, just chill. It's going to take a little bit longer, but I know right up there it's going to end. But if I can't see the end, I'm losing my mind. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just thinking to myself, should I go in the emergency lane? 
You know, like, is that going to work? Maybe I'll get arrested. I don't know. Can I reverse across the median and go back somewhere and get on an exit and then try to get somewhere? I mean, you start to think of everything. Like, how do I get out of here? How do I get out of here? And this is what the teacher is saying life is like. Life is like driving on the turnpike or driving on 95 and you're heading up to Orlando and everything is great for a moment and then all of a sudden there are red lights and you get stopped. And you cannot see where it ends. You can't find out where it ends. And so you start to scheme. You start to figure out, okay, what do I do? Is there a shortcut that I can pass through this struggle, that I can get past this? Can I reverse out of here? Should I put the car in park and get on the hood of the car? Maybe if I get up there, then I can see what's happening. That God has put eternity in your heart, which means there's a desire for transcendence. There's a desire to know what is going to happen in your life. And there's a deep desire inside of you to chase after and to find meaning and to find happiness. And you want to know if you're going to get there. And you want to know what's ahead. And you cannot see the end. And that is frustrating. And it's hard. It's what makes life a struggle because you're looking at your life and you're trying all these things for happiness and they're not working and you're trying to figure out if you can get past this deadlock, this gridlock in your life, if you can take the shortcut, if you can reverse out of here, then maybe once you get up to this place in the future, then you'll find happiness. But you can't see the end and it makes the present frustrating and hard. So the question is, what do you do then? Because... That's why life can be so full of anxiety and stress and fear and exhaustion and just a feeling like, what am I doing? The teacher says in verse 12, I concluded that there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. At the very end of it all, the teacher is saying, you know, I, I, I chased happiness, lasting happiness in everything. I thought it was going to bring fulfillment and meaning and happiness, and it didn't provide any of those things. And what I've come to find is that you need to enjoy God's present gifts. You need to learn how to get off the roof, stop swerving to the side to see if you can see the end, stop contemplating taking the emergency exit, Stop trying to figure out if you can reverse out of it. Just relax, turn the music back on, sit in the car, talk to the neighbors, and have a good time, and enjoy God's present gifts. And I want to say something that's important here. The teacher is not speaking here about not looking to improve yourself professionally or improve your relationships or improve uh, and grow in your faith or improve the city. He's not speaking about that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, stop believing that if you can just get fill in the blank or achieve this or experience this, once you experience this or get this or achieve this, then you'll finally be happy. He says, you're chasing after vapors and you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to provide what you're looking for. Instead, enjoy God's plan unfolding before you and enjoy the present gifts that God has given you. Live fully present. Enjoy what is before you now, especially because you cannot see the end, nor can you change it. You can't change God's plan. It doesn't matter if you can see it or not. It's not going to make a difference. He says in verse 14, I know that whatever God does is final, 
Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. In life, we don't know where the traffic ends. We don't know what is ahead. And we can't change God's ultimate plan. And yet, we're called to enjoy the plan unfolding before us and enjoy the gifts that have been made available to us in the moment. And so the question is, how are we able to live fully present and to enjoy God's present gifts? How do you do this? How do you live fully present and enjoy God's present gifts? We need to to know and to follow God's purpose. And that's how he ends in verse 14. He says, God's purpose is that people should fear him. And, and fear is equivalent to trust. Saying God, God's purpose is this. Regardless of where you are in life, regardless of what's happening, regardless of whether or not it feels like gridlock, trust in what God is doing in your life. Trust the plan that he is unfolding and enjoy what he has put before you. Essentially, the question that the teacher is leaving us with is this. Who is your God? The very first commandment in the Ten Commandments of the book of the law is what? Have no other gods, small g, before me, the one true God. See, see gods, small g, or idols, are, are things that we run to that we believe will provide what? Good and happiness and meaning. And we run to when we're distressed. And what is being said here is very simple. Do not fall captive to believing that success or building, or innovation, or comfort, or luxuries, or sex, or money can provide good and happiness, and they will not provide a refuge in your distress. Who is your God? Is there a small g God that you're running to for those things, or are you trusting in the one true God? M. Scott Peck said in his book, A Road Less Traveled, said, as soon as we believe that it is possible for a man to become God, we can never really rest for long, never say, okay, my job is done. We must constantly push ourselves to greater and greater wisdom, greater and greater effectiveness. By this belief, we will have trapped ourselves at least unto death on an effortful treadmill of self-improvement and spiritual growth. God's responsibility must be our own. See, the teacher is also saying here, do not look for God in things, but don't look for God in within yourself. Don't look for God in, within yourself. Don't believe that through self-improvement or self-actualization, you can find happiness. Right? This is what culture tells us. There's a secret switch inside of you, and if you just chase the right thing that will flip that switch, then you'll be happy. And so what do we do? We're we're burdened with trying all these things. And so we try success and money and building and innovation and hard work and comfort and luxuries and sex. And we run after all these things because we believe that if we can just flip the switch, that secret switch inside of us, then we'll be happy. And it doesn't work. The teacher is saying that there is actually freedom from that burden. There's freedom from chasing after these meaningless things that are just vapors. And it is found in trusting God and enjoying his present gifts and resting in the moment and where he has you. And unlike the teacher who wrote Ecclesiastes, we have the advantage of our vantage point, which is we are after the cross. And so we have seen God's plan literally embodied in his son, Jesus Christ. 
And we're going to have burdens in life. You're going to carry burdens. You're going to struggle with chasing things for happiness that are vapors. But Jesus tells us that he takes our burdens upon himself. That he has paid for him. That he carries them. That he is a safe place to go to as a refuge in your distress. And by faith and trust, we can run to him. We don't see the end of our life, and we don't know exactly how God is going to unfold the plan. But by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can actually behold with the eyes of faith the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega God, whose plan cannot be thwarted, who does in himself contain all good, and who offers happiness and freedom from the treadmill of self-improvement that we keep running after to find happiness. We can find it in him. I love what Psalm 1611 says. It says this, You, God, will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. How are we able to live fully present and to rest in God's present gifts while we chase God? We don't chase building. We don't chase success or money or comfort or sex. We chase God. We don't look for happiness in anything under the sun. Instead, we look to the sun. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are, God, we're broken people that chase after everything but you for happiness. We are like the teacher where we look at our lives and, and we insert luxuries and comfort in, in our jobs, achieving success or making a lot of money, sex or whatever it may be. We, we put these idols, these, these other gods in our life that we run to and we chase after and we believe that they're going to make us happy. We believe that they're going to provide us good. They're going to relieve our distress God, tonight, would you remind us that that isn't the case? They won't provide. They'll only bring disappointment. They won't produce what we're seeking. Only those things can be found in you, Jesus. So would we trust in you? Would we rest and enjoy the plan that you are unfolding before us, knowing that you are good, that in you and chasing after you is happiness? and is a refuge for our distress as we look to you, Jesus Christ. Would we run to you even tonight as we approach the table? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.